I thank my colleague. I wanted to pitch it back to, um, to Mr. Hughes for, for a moment. In, in spite of your relative young age, you've had some valuable experience publicly discussing sensitive issues of, of race and culture. And I just wonder what advice you would give to young people who um, are thinking about this. As, as Mr. Owen said, everybody ought to let that marinate a little bit. As they begin to think about it, it's been suggested this morning that, that uh, ignorance of our history is a big part of this, that we, everybody across the country, I mean, in large numbers, we suffer from that. What's the response and what, what advice do you give to young people? Well, I would, I would urge people to observe the distinction between understanding history and responding to history. You can understand history and it can still be the case that you have a range of possible responses in front of you. So addressing myself to, to uh, Mr. Coates's comments before, uh, if I understand them, the idea is if we really understood our history, then we wouldn't keep Confederate statues up, for example. Therefore, the fact that they, they're still up implies that we don't really understand it in our bones. And that, that I think, highlights a distinction uh, between how, how I think about this issue and how uh, other people on the panel think about it. Uh, for example, there was a poll in the Washington Post last year which found that 30% of black Virginians wanted the Confederate statues to stay up. Now, I don't think they wanted that because they hated themselves. I don't think they wanted that because they didn't understand their own history. Perhaps they were people who just didn't like seeing their communities change. There are many people like that. And I respect that, even though I myself would be fine to see those statues come down. So the point here is that uh, um, our response, whether or not you agree with it, is not itself evidence that we don't understand our history. And we can, have, we can have two separate conversations. One is what happened in this country, what was done to black people, what harm was incurred. And the second conversation is what do we do about that? And that second conversation is, the answer to that second conversation is not self-evident from the answer to the first. Thank you. I, I see Mr. Owens um, making notes over there. I know you have a lot to contribute on this subject. You, you do a lot with young people. What would you add to that? <clears throat> uh, I would first of all say we live in, in the United States of America, the greatest country in the history of mankind, a place that every person that comes here that apply ourselves to the rules, to the standards, to the standards in which we all can succeed, treat people right, be honest, dream big, dream above your obstacles and get back up when you fall down, then they can make it. History is there for us to find out and to gauge ourselves how far we've come. Fifty years ago, guys that I was fighting on the football field as being one of four black athletes are some of our best friends on Facebook today because we've all grown up. We've all understood that the message of our fathers was incorrect and we're doing our very best to make sure we be the better people as we move forward. This country, every generation, works to find its better self. As long as we don't reach back and define ourselves by the worst of ourselves. And that's what too many people are doing today. We have Americans in this country, and we're calling elitists, that live the American dream, put the kids in the best colleges ever, travel every place you can think of, not have any issues, have, we're going to have a great retirement, and then tell the rest of our race they can't do it. Why? Because the white man won't let them. I personally think that's, that's an insult to my parents, my grandparents. I did not grow up around white people until I was 16 years old, and I was so proud to be in that community I grew up in, in Tallahassee, Florida, because we were kicking butt. 
We were leading our kids. They were teaching us how to, how to be proud Americans. When I went, last, last point, I went to University of Miami just to uh, study biology. By the time I was my third, my, my junior year, I decided I didn't want to do biology anymore. You know why I stayed with it? Because when I was leaving high school, as a white guy, I said I couldn't do it. And my parents taught me, if they say you can't, you do it. I lived in a library to prove that guy wrong. That's the way our race was, and that's the way our race needs to be again. What we can achieve, not, not think about what has happened to us in the past. Strangers, what strangers did to us, other strangers 200 years ago has nothing to do with us because that is not in our DNA. Thank you, Mr. Hughes. I've got 15 seconds. Let me give me one more question you can answer it, I hope. Um, you wrote an article uh, a while back entitled Black American Culture and the Racial Wealth Gap, and you talked about in spe uh, specifically the city of Boston, and there was a disparity uh, within the black community, and you, you, you've pointed out that um, black Bostonians of American ancestry had a median household wealth of $8 in, in that, but Caribbean ancestry had $12,000 of wealth. Talks to the disparity. I just wonder if you'd comment on the implications of that. Well, this just goes back to the point I made before about disparities even within races being normal. So if you go to, if you look at census figures for white Americans and break it down instead of talking about quote-unquote white people into white people of French ancestry, Russian ancestry, Swedish ancestry, you will find all kinds of disparities that by definition cannot be caused by some kind of systemic discrimination. Likewise with quote-unquote black Americans, it's a very diverse group. Something like 10% of black people in this country are immigrants uh, from places like Jamaica, Jamaica, Haiti, Nigeria, Ghana. And if you look at each individual group, you will find various disparities in wealth, in income, in crime rates that by definition can't be explained by either race or racism. So my point in citing that disparity is to uh, upset the notion that if society were fair, evidence of that would be equal outcomes between all groups because there are, a, there are so many differences historically in groups themselves, geographically, just in terms of median age, right? The average black person in this country is 10 years younger than the average white person. So when you're comparing blacks to whites, that's just one of the many ways in which you're not actually comparing apples to apples. So my, my point in citing that was just to upset that, that um, uh, lazy assumption that we make about socioeconomic and other outcomes. Thank you. I yield back. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Next, recognize Ms. Scanlon for five minutes. Thank you. Um, before coming to Congress just last November, um, I was a public interest attorney, and so my work focused on access to justice, access to the ballot, and access to a good public education. And all three forms of access, as we've been discussing here today, are too often denied to people of color and poor people. And unfortunately, as we've discussed, there's a disproportionate representation of, of people of color among poor people in this country. Um, so I wanted to ask some questions to um, talk about the relationship between the structural legacy of slavery and racism and a couple of the issues that are top of mind in my district. So one of them, and thank you for mentioning it, Mr. Glover, is environmental justice. Um, the city of Chester is in my district. It's a majority African-American um, population, and it is surrounded by heavily polluting industries. Um, just Sunday night, CNN's United Shades of America featured the um, incinerators there. Uh, one in four 
children, African-American children in my district have asthma largely as a result of these environmental factors. So, so we've got this environmental justice issue we're dealing with. We've got um, schools issues. Pennsylvania has one of the most um, wildly inequitable public school funding systems. And if you go to the schools in Philadelphia and some of the other majority African-American school districts, you see schools that are over 100 years old and literally visiting them, there's asbestos and lead paint dripping into the water fountains that the children have to use. Um, and then a third issue, which we've also touched on, is, is our policing and criminal justice issues, where African-American folks are um, locked up at, what, five times the rate of white people. So how does the reparations conversation help us drive forward those issues? How can I link it for folks in my district to the issues they're facing daily? And if I could ask Reverend Sutton and then Mr. Coates to maybe address that. Thank you. Those issues are linked. We have to make a distinction between personal responsibility and social responsibility. I go into the high schools in Baltimore as well, and we even sponsor programs to, uh, to convince high schoolers, you can do this, you can succeed, you can make it. That's personal responsibility. But when you go in the schools and you see the conditions, you see the quality of the teaching and all that, you know that... Uh, they don't have the same shot as those who live 10 miles away or five mil miles away in their school systems. And so uh, one of the roles of the Congress is to make sure that there is a corporate responsibility that we all have for all of our citizens. Um, we can all celebrate the tremendous strides that have been made in racial attitudes in this country. We're proud of the accomplishments of many African-American individuals. I'm proud of my accomplishments. I've worked very hard, and my brothers and sisters. But for the millions of descendants of slaves who are trapped in this pernicious cycle of hopelessness, poverty, and rage due to their real experience of inequities, segregation, inferior schools, redlining, and the light, the widespread assumption that everyone can pull themselves up by their bootstraps is a lie. It's a falsehood. And that's a, that is one of the things that this legislation wants to address. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Coates? I think, frankly, and this is going to get repetitive, it comes back to the weight of history. Um, I, I heard it said just earlier, for instance, that uh, the matters which face us today have nothing to do with our strangers from, from 200 years ago. Um, that's not the attitude we take towards George Washington. That's not the attitude we take towards Abraham Lincoln. Uh, we take that attitude to history that we're ashamed of. We don't take that attitude towards history that we're proud of. Again, as I said earlier, answering another question, that one of the great weights of 250 years of enslavement in this country, which is longer than the, the, the 150 years of freedom that African Americans have enjoyed, is the codification of the idea of inferiority among black people, and not just in the culture, but in the very laws themselves. And even after those laws are, are, are repealed, as well they should, the idea still remains and it's, and, and, and it's passed on. And so, for instance, uh, it, it was just said uh, uh, by one of my fellow committee members uh, that there is a difference between uh, the incomes of Caribbean black immigrants and native blacks. This is, this is true. 
um, it's also quite understandable. People who come to America to pursue opportunity generally tend to do better than the masses of a whole group that have been here. This is true of all immigrants, so this is not particularly surprising. But what happens when you look at that second generation? What happens when you look at that third generation of Caribbean blacks? In fact, unlike all other groups, they quickly become African-American blacks in terms of their other statistics. Why is that? It's the weight of history. It's the implicit idea that is codified in our laws, in our criminal justice system, uh, in the very places that we live to this very day. There is no way to, to get out of this. There is no way of escaping this without a direct confrontation, without H.R. 40, the very reason we're here. Thank, Thank you. you Thank much. you. Thank you, Ms. Scanlon. Before I go to my next, I'd like to recognize Mr. Wade Henderson, who's here. He was the president of the uh, Leadership Conference on Human and Civil Rights and a great hero for many years. Thank you for your attendance and your years of work. Uh, Mr. Hillary Shelton was here earlier, and they kind of were a team. He was at the NAACP, and he left. Uh, Ms. Dean, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, and uh, I, I, I thank you for having this hearing. Uh, as troubling as this topic is, I can't tell you how glad that we're here today. I can't tell you how glad that this conversation is taking place. So I thank uh, my colleague from Texas, Ms. Jackson Lee, for her extraordinary, tenacious leadership uh, on this legislation. We're here to acknowledge the terrible wrong in history, to recognize the continuation of those injuries, and that's one area I want to examine quickly if I can, uh, and to discover a, a, a remedy uh, to these atrocities atrocities, some measure of healing for this country. So if I could uh, take a look in the time that I'm allotted at two things. Mr. Coates, I wanted to ask you about the ongoing predatory practices. Uh, I happen to also be a member of the Financial Services Committee. And so uh, we've examined uh, some of the practices, for example, by Wells Fargo uh, in predatory subprime lending in the African-American community. Because too often we hear that this is a thing of the past. This is, this is not something that's happened today. We, there's not an ongoing problem. You're dealing with something that's past. It's not past. The discrimination, the atrocities continue. So if you could help me with the predatory practices. And then I wanted to try to lift it a little after that, um, because I loved what you said, right, Reverend, that it is important for our white brothers and sisters. We need this as much, if not more. Uh, for the healing of our soul, healing of the soul of the country. And Ms. Bourne, you talked about, or Brown, you talked about the liberating power of having this conversation and taking a look at all of this. So if we could talk about ongoing predatory practices and discrimination and then maybe take it to uh, the other side. Sure. As, as I was saying earlier, uh, it, it's like any other injury. There is the primary effect of the injury, and then there's a the secondary and territory effects of that injury. Uh, uh, African-Americans uh, have a history of segregation in this country. Uh, what that means is not merely living separately from whites. Uh, it means living separately from whites for the explicit purposes of denying certain benefits and certain funding and certain resources to black people. Uh, in, in the case of the housing history in the 20th century, what that meant was that for long periods of time, while this country was making access, uh, making available to middle class and working class white families, low interest loans, the possibility of home ownership, which had not been available in the, in the, in the previous preceding decades, black people were, 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 were completely cut out of that process. Uh, but still there was that dream of buying a home. And so what that gap left was for 
predatory lending to come in, illegitimate lending that did not enjoy the, the imprimatur or the backing of the FHA to come into black neighborhoods and uh, uh, make loans under conditions that were, to say the least, onerous. In some cases, black folks didn't even actually own the homes. Uh, this practice of, sure. Contract lending. Contract lending, you, yes, yes, yes. Could you give us a quick definition of that? The basic idea of contract lending is because I don't have, I don't have access to the normal routes of banking yeah. uh, to buy a home. And so a contract lender comes in and pretends to actually sell me the home and gives me all the responsibilities of, of the homeowner, the upkeep, the upkeep, uh, the maintenance, the taxes, et cetera, but actually holds on to the deed. Uh, it's a high-tech, uh, uh, what do you call it, rent as you buy, 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 buy rent option. And the other practice that Wells Fargo participated in in a huge way uh, in the early 2000s, 2005, uh, as quoted by a, a former Wells Fargo loan officer, they went into black communities, particularly through their churches, and pushed subprime le- lending mortgages on those folks who would have qualified likely for regular mortgages. Uh, and she said, we went right after them. She's a former member of Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo Mortgage had an emerging market unit and specifically targeted black churches because it figured church leaders had a lot of influence and we could convince congregants and congregants to take subprime loans. That's recent. That's ongoing kinds of stuff. That's egregious. Uh, so anybody says this is a thing of the past uh, just isn't paying attention. Yes, Con- Congressman, just really quick. The reason why I, I just keep insisting on history is the very fact that that group of people was vulnerable in the first place is because of red- redlining and Jim Crow. That's they right. never would have been in that position if not for history. And I apologize, but Ms. Brown, if you don't mind, I'm from Pennsylvania, so uh, suburban Philadelphia. If you could talk about that notion of, of liberation as a result of looking at your own history can you tell us what that felt like and why we should argue that for uh, us and, and paint that picture? Uh, thank you so much. There's so many layers to it. Um, the, the part of what hasn't been mentioned today is the fact that race is a fiction. So slavery, the very concept of race and of one race being superior to another was invented to justify slavery. And it was also deployed in order to have white working class, like indentured servants back in Virginia in the colonial era, um, identify with this notion of whiteness and with wealthier whites rather than identify with enslaved Africans and native people who they, with whom they had common cause. Um, and so there's a lot of layers to this history that I think for a lot of the white Americans who feel like um, this is just an accusation, and this is just a, yet another case of calling their people historically racist or calling them racist today. Um, in my experience, the, the African-American community is much more sophisticated about understanding that, that some of these dynamics, for example, with um, the GI Bill and whatnot, it's, it's mundane complicity of white folks who are benefiting from a system and looking the other way. They're not necessarily getting up in the morning and saying, I want to be racist. And there's an understanding of that amongst those of us who are in the field doing this work. Um, so they're just, again, coming back to the learning of the history. It's liberatory to get beyond even the very concept of race. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I know Thank I'm you. over. Thank you, Ms. Dean. Uh, Ms. Garcia, you're on. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, first, I want to thank uh, the chairman for bringing this forward. And, of course, to my colleague from Houston that uh, we have worked for many years on so many social justice issues at home. It's just great to 
to stand with you again uh, in this time here on such a very, very important national topic. I am a co-sponsor, and I pledge to you uh, that I will work shoulder to shoulder with you uh, to make sure we get this done. Uh, And to all the people in the audience, thank you for being here. I know it's it's been a long hearing, uh, but I think it's going to be... Thank you for being here, and, and I know you've been, you've been waiting, but I think the waiting will be worth it when we get to the end of the tunnel. So, so thank you all for being here. And, and Bishop, I want to just start with you because it really did warm my heart that, that you have some scripture notes here and, and that you uh, mentioned Jesus. Um, you know, I have a very deeply firm help religious belief that that we really are all created equal and that we really are all children of God. Uh, and I want you to just pretend that instead of speaking to us right now, that you're speaking to the average American who may not have read everything that we have, who may not have uh, been as attuned to this hearing, but is kind of wondering what this is really all about, because as much as you say and others have said that this isn't about a check, the bottom line is that when some people start talking about reparations, they think that it's just about that. So my question to you is, what would Jesus do about reparations? Well, um, when it comes to those questions, I like to remind people, I'm in sales, not management. <laughs> I don't, uh, and so I'm not going to make nice. those decisions. Very nice. a good start. But the, um, I, I want to be clear. It's not just about a check. Correct. When I think of, um, I think of about some African-American women who are languishing in nursing homes with no money, no wealth. And no, no, let's cut a check. I think about uh, some others where a check would be really, really good. So I just wanted to be clear about this. But it's not essentially about, being, about, money, about money. It's about being good. There's been talk uh, here about uh, our nation being a great nation or to make it great again or the greatest nation of all. I'm more concerned about this nation being good. Let's be good. Let's do a good thing. And if we can be good enough, then let history and let people around the world say, the United States is great, not because you can make a lot of money there, not because you can enrich yourself, not because of the size of your military or your armaments. They're great because they're good. And so I'm here today to witness to being good about this, that there is some unfinished business in this, in this nation. Lastly, about the souls. 19, in 1903, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote that famous book, uh, The Souls of Black Folk. I would like to see another book written, The Souls of White Folk. The souls of white folk in this nation right now. What does it do to your soul to know that some of the benefit you get from your white skin and your background is not accrued to everybody. What does that do to your soul? And so uh, this is a soulful, a soulful act, I think, that we are talking Thank about you. today. And it's really going to take all of us. I said earlier that um, we've forgiven you. And that what I mean is we're here. We're in America. We want America to be good and great. Um, Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa said once, without forgiveness, there is no future. We have to forgive one another, but that doesn't mean we stop there. We have work to do, and this work for uh, reconciliation. I wonder if my sister here... uh, Well, actually, I had a question for uh, Mr. Coates. 
But, but you'd have to go really quickly. I had one question for Mr. Coach, so if you wanted to add something real quick. I'm running out of time. No, I'm the economist on the panel, so it's a little bit... No, I know that. It's a little frustrating that economic questions are being directed to non-economists. Um, well, I think I have some things that I'd like to be able to say about some of this. Um, but thank you, my brother, for giving me, for, for passing the mic. I really do appreciate it. Um, the questions about predatory lending really need to, that the, your sister congresswoman raised, really need to be dealt with because it's not just that it's something that's happening well, if, if you're going to talk about, about predatory lending, could you also add, because what I was going to ask Kim, you could probably answer also, this whole history of the exclusion of blacks from some of the early programs like Social Security and the oh, yes, GI Bill and wage. others, because it all is about economic security. So if you could blend your, your answer, that would be great, because then I... Okay, I would sure. Use it my time and get my both questions in. Sure. I mean, we can go back and look at the minimum wage, which exclude farm workers in the South, which were predominantly black people, excluded domestic workers right. who were black women. And so these folks were excluded not only from the minimum wage, but also from the Social Security system. And to very, so your comment about black women in nursing homes is very pointed, given all of that. I mean, we have to look at this. I, the hearts and minds questions, um, I'm an economist, so I leave that to the but what I want, to, but, but my thing is let's look at the economic underpinnings of the inequality that exists in this country, the wealth gap that exists in this country, and the differences that it makes. Sister Congresswoman, when you talked about predatory lending, a third of the people who had predatory loans qualified for regular loans, mm -hmm. a third of them. However, they did not get them because of the way that slavery racism basically segregated people. So uh, while it's, it's lovely to sing Kumbaya, which I don't do very often, I think it's even better to talk about what's going on economically and the differences that exist because of the wealth gap. When a black woman, man, is arrested, absent wealth, they lay up in the jail for I don't know how many days because they don't have the home to mortgage to get the bail. Mm -hmm. And cash bail is discriminatory. And so we, we can just go down the list and talk about the, way, the very many ways that racism affects the quality of folks' lives. And with all due respect to these Kumbaya brothers over here who, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm proud of my family too. I mean, we good black people too. I have a PhD, I have two MBAs in my family, but I'm not gonna give you my family history. But, but you know, but it's, it is irrelevant. It is irrelevant when you're dealing with structure. I want y'all, Congress people, to deal with issues of economic structure, and economic structure has generated an inequality that makes it difficult for people to live their lives. When zip code determines what kind of school that you go to, when zip code determines what kind of food you can eat, these are the vestiges of enslavement that a lot of people don't want to deal with. Forgive my... Um, you know, I'm kind of over the top, but I usually am. Those in the audience who know me know, you know, tick, tick, boom. But, um, but the fact is that I'm gratified, Sheila, Congresswoman Jackson Lee, for these hearings, but I'm also frustrated for the tone that some of this has taken because it takes us away from the economic underpinnings of what needs to go on here. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield to the gentleman from Louisiana. I thank my colleague. Uh, this, this has really been a, a thoughtful discussion. I know we're nearing the end of it. We have more to go. Thanks, everybody, for their patience. I, I just want to touch on something the Reverend Sutton said a moment ago about America being good. It is good. 
it is the greatest nation in the history of the world. There's a reason for that. G.K. Chesterton was a famous British philosopher. He famously said, America is the only nation in the world that is founded upon a creed. And he said it's listed with almost theological lucidity in the Declaration of Independence. What is the creed? We are the first people in the history of the world that openly acknowledged, boldly declared, that we are created in the image of God, and therefore every single person has inalienable human rights. Uh, That is a self-evident truth, the founder said. We're trying to live up to that promise. As you all know, Martin Luther King Jr. famously said that was a promissory note to future generations, and we're trying to get there. The honest question that we're trying to get to is is, is the, the, the payment, okay, which would be part of this by many people's estimation, is that part of that attaining the ultimate goal? And it's, it's a thoughtful question. It's a serious one. And, and I don't think that you should disparage the motives of anybody who's asking these, these, these piercing questions. And, and we're going to, and we are. You're all part of the dialogue, and I'm, I'm grateful that it's largely been a civil discussion today, and, and I really appreciate your contributions. Let me go back to Mr. Owens. In a 2018 interview, um, you noted that uh, you said, quote, it was the black community that led our country in terms of the growth of the middle class. Between 40 and 50 percent of black Americans became part of the middle class. The black community also led the country in terms of the commitment of men to marriage at over 70 percent, unquote. I-, I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on, on what you attribute that to. Um, head, heart, home, hands. Uh, we were a race that believed in God, very committed to the Christian faith. Because we did, our men believed in being the men of their household to provide for their kids and their wife, and they took that commitment very seriously. Um, They took pride in being producers. The idea of me being a beggar was not an option. Uh, When I I failed after coming out of the NFL, seven years after coming out of the NFL, uh, totally humbling, but for a brief few months, I was willing to be a, a chimney sweep. I was willing to be a security guard. That was the way we were taught. Do whatever it takes to provide for your family. It doesn't matter. Be proud of it. And I'm proud of it now. We'll never want to go there again. But at the end of the day, that's what we were taught. We have now, we're turning out my race into one that's feeling that they're entitled to somebody else's property. We're now asking for something, reparation, that we'll get to, 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 we'll get to, to funding, but something we never experienced ourselves in our lives. Don't, are not owed because we have a chance every single day to make a choice. I can choose the day to be more successful or less. And it has nothing to do with my ancestor, great, or my great-great-grandfather Silas, other than the fact that I'm so proud that he showed me, through his example, how to overcome obstacles. So we need, we need to get back the pride that we had during the 40s, 50s, and 60s of the race when we were competing against the white race, when we were segregated, we, when our money stayed within our community, and, it, and, and, and our leadership stayed in our community. We weren't trying to get out to somebody else's race to give them our, our, our business. We need to recognize that within our kids is our future. I personally believe this. Right now we have over 60,000 of our youth that's incarcerated every single year. These kids, most of them, 85% don't have fathers. We were able to get those kids back, to give them the hope that this country can give them a great opportunity, that they can go out and build businesses or move their future on. They will bring us back to the abyss. And I believe those kids, the ones that we give hope again, will bring our country back from the abyss. We need to give them the right message first. Very well said. Mr. Hughes, I, I know there's a lot that's been said here, and I know you have thoughts on a lot of these topics. I, I'll just yield back to you for 55 minutes here, pitch it to you. What would you like to add to the conversation? Oh dear, uh, a lot has been said. I'm not sure there's any one specific thing at this moment I want to respond to. 
That's great. I, I respect that. Listen, um, we're probably out of time for or out of questions on this side. But again, on behalf of everybody here, I think I speak for all my colleagues. We really appreciate your interest, your involvement, your patience today. It's been a long hearing, but I think we've had a thoughtful discussion. I think it's important for the country for us to do this. So I'm grateful and I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Johnson. Ms. Escobar of Texas is next. Five minutes. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman. Um, and I want to just say how proud I am and fortunate I feel to, to be in the room with all of you, to be able to have this very important discussion and to participate in this historic hearing. I also just want to quickly acknowledge and thank my um, sister, Congresswoman, uh, the Congresswoman, the gentlelady from Texas. Thank you, Sheila, for your incredible work and your passion and the dignity and strength that you bring to this discussion. And as my colleague from California, Ms. Bass, mentioned, this is a difficult conversation to have, but one that is so long overdue. Ms. or Dr. Malvo, I so appreciate your economic perspective. And I want to ask you a couple of questions uh, rooted in that economic background that you have so that you can help the country understand the significance of why we have to have this conversation. So first I'd like to ask you to respond to critics of this bill who claim that the U.S. has already paid reparations to African Americans through affirmative action. How would you respond to that? Sister Congresswoman, for the question, uh, let me say that affirmative action, the primary beneficiaries of affirmative action actually were white women. And there is a significant research that shows that because white women were better poised to take advantage of the benefits that affirmative action provided, you had disadvantage and discrimination. The African-American community had disadvantage plus discrimination white women simply had discrimination. So when you go back and look at the data, you will not find that African Americans significantly benefited from affirmative action. It was a lot of talk and not a lot of action. So, you know, when people talk about we've already paid reparations, I've heard people talk about the fact that, you know, white people died in the Civil War fighting on the side of the North. Well, the North was also a beneficiary of um, enslavement, quite frankly, and uh, my sister here who's talked about her family has lifted that up. So, no, the reparations have not been paid, and the fact is that we're not as, again, some folks may want checks, but what we're really talking about is closing that wealth gap and making people whole. Thank you. And to that point about the wealth gap, you have remarked and pointed out that the, that the income gap was actually shrinking until government uh, played a role. The, the, the income gap for formerly enslaved individuals. The wealth gap. Actually. The wealth gap. I'm the sorry. The wealth gap was shrinking until Jim Crow laws and profligate racism uh, intruded in the ways that people were able to live their lives. So that people, the Tommy Ma story that I told a little bit of, the guy who opened the grocery store, Ida B. Wells' grand goddaughter's um, dad, opened a grocery store, he dared, he dared to compete with white people. And because he dared to compete with white people, he basically lost his life. Tulsa, Oklahoma, when the governor of Oklahoma actually um, appointed a commission to find out why the Wall Street massacre occurred, one of the newspapers came up with this conclusion, too many N-words have too much money. Uh, 
That was the conclusion of an official government commission. And Black Wall Street was amazing. Uh, Dr. Olivia Hooker, who passed just last November, was the oldest living survivor, and she was a friend. And I mean, she said, we didn't have to leave the black community for anything except for banking. We had our own grocery stores, department stores. Black doctors built a library when white folks wouldn't build a library for black people. That kind of economic thriving became a source of envy. Wilmington, North Carolina, where Brother Man over here wants to talk about, people want to talk ugly about Democrats. People change their ideologies. So the Democrats were the devil once upon a time. There were these groups called the, the Red Shirts, which were the Klan. Uh, they were Democrats. However, the Republicans took that over. They became the devil. And uh, I'm just saying, um, and forgive me, Brother Chairman. I know you said I'm not supposed to say that. Uh, forgive me. Uh, but in any case, people do change ideologies. So all this throwing at Democrats, Democrats and Republicans have been racist. But in Wilmington, North Carolina, Republicans and black people came together to form a fusion government. And white folks were so frightened that they took all the prominent black men in that town, arrested them, the next morning gave them tickets to leave town. They had to leave their property, their livelihood, their families, everything. This is why we need reparations. White Democrats, yes, Democrats were so threatened by the notion of this fusion government that they basically burned people out. They've documented 60 deaths, but there, there's a film when I was talking and you told me I couldn't talk. There's a film called Wilmington on Fire. I want everybody to watch this film, Wilmington on Fire. It really does talk about what happened in Wilmington in 1898 when they just basically burned black folks out. 25% of the black people in Wilmington left. Uh, nearly a third of the black businesses in Wilmington went out of business. It, it was really about economic envy. So absent this economic envy and fear, black folks, we didn't get the 40 acres and a mule, but we were still trying to do it. And then folks came in and said, wait a minute, if we let them do their thing, where's our cheap labor going to come from? You know, where, and so that, that's what happened. Thank you for the question. Thank you so much, Chairman. I'm out of time. Appreciate it very much. And last but far from least is the sponsor of H.R. 40, the Honorable Sheila Jackson Lee for her five minutes plus. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> It is appropriate for me, Mr. Chairman, to thank you so very much and to dis dispel this audience from any suggestion and witnesses that we're here on a temporary pass, doing temporary work that's going to be fleeting and never to be seen again. I want to thank Chairman uh, Cohen, who comes from the heart of Memphis, uh, and Tennessee, uh, who has walked in the life of a dual society. And I want to thank uh, Chairman Nadler, who, as he indicated, uh, as I did, supported H.R. Uh, 40 and the leadership of John Conyers. I want to thank all of my colleagues on this panel for their diligence and outstanding questions. They are going to be in the forefront of educating, answering the questions, being a team, and I look forward to their work on this very powerful committee, Judiciary Committee. What better place uh, to have this hearing? And to those who are, again, trying to understand our process, you have to have a hearing. Then there is something called a markup. Then there is a vote in the committee. 
And then there's the opportunity to go to the floor of the House of Representatives on to the Senate, uh, which will be the other body, as we call it, uh, and the challenge that I will accept and I hope that you will accept, uh, and then a signature by a president of the United States of America. Let this day, June 19, 2019, be the marker for the commitment for each and every one of you who have come to support to say, on my watch, we will watch this bill pass and be signed by the President of the United States of America. I want to acknowledge uh, Pastor Alan Patterson, who is from uh, my hometown, uh, and uh, he is, uh, I know he wouldn't mind me say, the inheritor of a great historic church in historic Fifth Ward, Texas, uh, that was a uh, settling place for freed slaves, Mount Corinth Baptist Church. I'm delighted that he is here, and I thank him. All the others uh, I have thanked. Let me thank the witnesses. Mr. Chairman is very kind, but I will be diligent. Let me thank the witnesses who are here, uh, each and every one of them. Uh, let me uh, thank uh, Mr. Coates, Mr. Glover, Mr. Ms. Brown, Ms. Hughes, Ms. Owens, uh, the right Reverend, Reverend Eugene Taylor Sutton, and as well, Dr. Julianne Malveaux, Professor Eric Miller. And let me get to my questions at this point. During the red summer of 1919, violence against African-American communities erupted. Two years later in the Tulsa race riot, 300 African-Americans were killed, and the entire black community of Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was destroyed. Another devastating racist attack took place in Rosewood, Florida in 1923. Black-owned homes and businesses were systematically burned. At least eight people were killed. And during Afri despite African-American service in World War II. I commend Mr. Coleman and I think Mr. Um, uh, excuse me, Mr. Owens and Mr. Hughes, excuse me, read the bill. What the bill says is that this is a study to consider a national apology, which has been done, and a proposal for reparations for the institution of slavery. Yes. The institution of slavery has never gone away. It exists. It is subsequent to de jure and de facto. That is, that it is uh, subject to the laws and to the current atmosphere of what has generated today racial and economic discrimination against African Americans and the impact of these forces on living African Americans that are to make recommendations to the Congress on appropriate remedies and for other purposes. Why does the Congress have to do it? Because the Congress is the lawmaking body of the federal government, and it was the state and federal government that institutionalized laws that made slavery an act of the state. Yes. And it's not the courts they will interpret, but we have to correct our error. And that is why, uh, in that historic moment, Republicans and, I guess, some Democrats came together in the Congress and supported the 13th Amendment, which then Democrats and Republicans, or whatever they were called at that time, throughout the states, then the states voted to accept that particular amendment. That is why the Congress must do its job. I welcome the, the, the disparate opinions, but I would argue to the gentleman from Columbia that you are, I think, without the historical perspective and the pain 
of being opposed at your very young age to affirmative action and reparations. Um, so I would welcome a continuing debate. My door is open uh, for you. I welcome you being here as a witness. But I think it is important to take note of this. One, my husband, uh, not my husband, excuse me, love him too. My father was Ezra Clyde Jackson. He was the baby boy of a widow mother with four, three brothers that went to World War II. A young man that graduated from the high school for arts in New York City. He, out of high school, went to the cartoon industry in New York. It was thriving. What an amazing thing for a young black boy. When the white men came back from World War II, my, my, mm, my father was summarily fired for them to take his place. I was not born then, but I can tell you that the life of that talented black man was never the same. Until some 40 years later, when he was able to, his talent never lost, able to be called back into that industry. Racism. It wasn't slavery. It wasn't 1892. It was in these prosperous 40s that you were talking about. That my father, because of the color of his skin, his brilliant talent, the cartoonist artist that he was, was summarily fired. And so the question I have Dr. Malvo, while the white middle class was being buoyed by the New Deal period of my father's life, African Americans were consistently excluded from its benefits. For example, the 1935 Social Security Act carved out jobs largely filled by African American workers such as farm and domestic labor from its old age and unemployment insurance. Federal housing programs also discriminated against African Americans by redlining black neighborhoods to preclude them from receiving Federal Housing Administration, FHA. The GI Bill, which dedicated billions of dollars toward expanding opportunity for soldiers returning uh, from war, also contributed to the widening gap between white and black Americans. Southern congressional leaders made certain that the programs were controlled by local white officials, resulting in black veterans being denied housing and business loans. Now, Dr. Malvo, I want to get to uh, your seat make there, uh, Mr. Miller. Uh, so I'm going to you first, and I also want to get to Mr. Coates on these issues, and I thank all the other witnesses. Could you comment on uh, this impact, this continuing impact, when we didn't benefit from that? Yeah. Both for the hearing and for the question, the continuing impact is it shows up in the wealth gap. In addition, the, ent the entirety of the way that we redlined black communities through the Federal Housing Administration, redlined communities so that people could not get housing loans, even when they qualified for them. That th this was government policy. This is why Congress must do this. Congress did the, the devil, and now Congress has to do the right thing. It, it, it's quite simple. I'm so happy that you mentioned the GI Bill for a couple of reasons. Um, number one, as you said, the state authorities decided who got benefits. In the state of Mississippi, fewer than 1,000, and the number is six or 700, I'm going to just round up, fewer than 1,000 black men were able to go to college on the GI Bill from Mississippi. Uh, because when they went to get their GI benefits, the GI board said, oh, you could go to barber school. 
Oh, you could go to trade school. But these were brothers who were qualified to go to college, should have had that opportunity, would have had generational differences in the way they lived had they done that. So we, Congress has indifferently, essentially, sidelined black people from the opportunities that they created for white people. It's plain and simple. Sideline us for those opportunities, and that's why it's time now to talk about how to fix that. My brother, who has done the work on Tulsa, uh, can, can talk so much more about that. But let us simply say the commission that is created must go through line by line and look at all this and detail it. I don't like to think, I ain't, like I said, I'm not kumbaya. So I don't like to think Thank that white you. people are evil. I think white people are ignorant. May I just because white people do not know what the history is, and I commend y'all to look at the history and the work that you've done in the past and then challenge you to do the right thing. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Coates, may I just, may I bring you to the, the 21st century and uh, a recent article in the New York Times that, that basically says, yeah, thank you. But in the shadows, this is, uh, this is Kansas City. Um, downtown is booming. But in the shadows of the city's thriving business and entertainment district are languishing east side neighborhoods pocked with boarded up homes, overgrown trash strewn lots. The shiny calves and storefronts are almost non-existent and residents like the Tanya Bowman felt forgotten. I love downtown and I'd love to see it grow too. But you've got to be real, says Miss Bowman, who lives in the predominantly black east side. It's like neglect. We get the leftovers. Can you uh, just bring that all together for us in what you have ascertained about the commission, racism, and where we are today. Sure. I, you know, I, I think the consistent point uh, from the comments that, you know, you just made an article you just read from, stretching all the way back to the period of enslavement uh, in, in this country, is the idea of theft. Uh, enslavement is theft. 250 years, black people had the fruits of their labor stolen from them. We don't often think about Jim Crow and the era of segregation as theft, but it's theft too. Uh, if I agree to pay taxes, if I agree to fealty to a government, and you give me a different level of uh, resources out of that tax pool, if you give me a different level of protection, you have effectively stolen from me. If you deny my ability to vote and to participate in the political process to decide how those resources are used, you have effectively stolen from me. And so it, it, it makes a kind of sense that after a period that begins in 1619 of theft, uh, ending conservatively, conservatively in 1968, I think I'd get an argument on that, but conservatively in 1968, that if you steal from a group of people over that longer period of time, you will have the very wealth gap that Dr. Malvo uh, resulted from. I think it's very, very important to bring that into the conversation because this wasn't a passive discrimination. This was appropriating resources from one group and giving them to the, to the other through the auspices of the state. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, be, I am uh, very grateful to you to yield back, and I feel the power in this room. I'd ask my colleague, Mr. Johnson, let us work together. Uh, let's get this done. Uh, it is long overdue. It is deserving, and it is the right thing to do. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you, Ms. Lee. And, of course, I want to thank all of our witnesses. This concludes today's hearing, and I want to thank our witnesses. It's been a great panel. This is what magnified times 10, 20, 50 of study would be like because this panel would be heard and heard and heard and people would get the story of what's happened in America and different perspectives on how to deal with it. Uh, without objection, all members will have five legislative days to submit additional written questions for the witnesses or additional material for the record. I want to thank a ranking member, 
and all of my members. Our attendance was excellent. Maybe I see John Stewart telling everybody was here and very attentive. And uh, the, for that, the hearing's adjourned. So that concludes the historic H.R. Uh, 40 in the path to restorative justice hearing that was held in the Judiciary uh, Committee of the U.S. Congress. Uh, today is Juneteenth. Uh, it is June 19th when emancipated victims of slavery who did not know that they had been emancipated 20, um, excuse me, two years earlier were um, then uh, told that they were free, but not told that the 13th Amendment had an exception clause. So welcome to uh, the coverage of the H.R. 40 and Path to Restorative Justice special coverage here on Black Talk Radio. Um, I've taken uh, quite a few notes, but I don't think I'm going to get to them all. I also have been posting to social media about uh, the H.R. hearings. is hashtag H.R. hearings. Uh, HR 40 hearings, I'm, I'm sorry, um, on Twitter. You can also follow us on Twitter at Black Talk Radio. Um, well, I should say follow me. Um, it's uh, BTR News, my personal uh, profile. Um, but if you have a question or comment, we will open up the phone lines. Um, if not, I will get through uh, my notes and then I will end this broadcast, but the telephone number, and by the way, we had some issues trying to simulcast this morning on Blog Talk Radio um, where we were given a legacy account because uh, uh, they see the value in black radio, but it had some technical problems with that, so I just shut this stream down. Uh, I was just trying to broadcast these hearings uh, to as many of our subscribers, but we mainly just post podcasts uh, over there. And uh, we don't do any live streaming. So I apologize um, if you were listening earlier over there and it got cut off. But as I stated, you know, our broadcast home is BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. So the phone number here is 704-802-5056, 704-802-5056. If you have any thoughts, any questions, any comments that you would like to make, hit the star key twice to unmute yourself, please. Uh, be mindful of your background noise. Um, so let me start it off by by going through a couple of my notes. And I'm going to go in reverse order here. I got like, what, three pages uh, of notes, but it was a lot to digest there. Um, let me uh, get to my notes. Uh the last thing that I had posted, you had uh, Louis Gohmert, uh, uh, one of the Republicans. And let me say this. I noticed a strategy among the um, Republicans, and that includes the self-identified black Republican, uh, Mr. Owens, the former NFL player whose body got used up uh, by the uh, NFL owners of whatever teams he played for. And... Uh, he ain't even have a pension or nothing. He used his body up, threw him out on the street. He had to then go get a security guard or job and what have you. But the strategy, it seems, of the Republicans were to make this a partisan hearing, make it about Democrats versus Republicans. Um, a lot of emphasis on what the Democratic Party uh, did when it was in charge of the federal government. And see, this is what's not being being um, 
Well, I should say this is what's being purposely misconstrued. The Democratic Party is the U.S. government. The Republican Party is the U.S. government. So it doesn't matter what political label or gang that you belong to at any point in history. Um, the fact is, is both those parties make up the federal government. The federal government had policies that they implemented, and they also had a constitution they failed to enforce. All right, uh, as uh, some of the people talked about the failure of Reconstruction and how that was uh, sabotaged by uh, once, um, uh, I think it was uh, Johnson who had got in there. Uh, but that was the strategy of the Republicans. Let's make this a partisan hearing. Let's make this about conservatives versus liberals, as as you know, we kept hearing those typical talking points from right wing talk talk radio or cable news channels. Um, you know, they frequently even brought up socialism, uh, Mr. Owens, a Marxism versus socialism, and they're teaching it in the schools and and and. You know, just a whole lot of unfounded, unfactual talking points. Um, let me pull up my thread on Twitter because I have notes there also. Um, let, let me pull those up because one of the things, you know, that Mr. Owens, who was big on anecdotal evidence, but he was very short. On, on facts. And what I mean by anecdotal evidence is telling me a story about your family. All right. Your family, your parents, it seems, uh, um, found a path to of survival um, and to a certain extent were thriving as an individual family as if, you know, millions upon millions of other uh, people had the same opportunities as you. They, they did not. That would be like me being dismissive of the 97% of African Americans, descendants of victims, of, of victims of slavery, Jim Crow, legalized state-sponsored uh, uh, race laws to prevent them from obtaining wealth, passing down wealth, and what have That would be like me t saying to the 97% that don't own land of African Americans in this country, I think it's estimated, that I belong to the family uh, among, I belong to a family among just 3% of African Americans who own land. And, and to take, to say that my grandfather um, and his grandfather or my grandmother, because it's really through my grandmother's line that, that uh, we're on this land. Um, and to say that because they were able to carve out this little part here in North Carolina and rural North Carolina and and have land um, through as being descendants of the founder of one of the colonies uh, here in North Carolina, uh, which is now known as Gaston County, where I live. It was founded as Rankin Town. Um, and, and so to say that to not acknowledge that the other 97% of their ancestors or their parents or grandparents or, or great-grandparents had the same opportunity and everything was equal. You know, um, you know, we are some of the most diverse people on the planet, African-Americans, that is. Uh, we have so many different nationalities entwined in our lineage. Um, 
my family here, although it's only one. So this is not me saying I'm Native American or trying to claim to be uh, a Catawba Indian. No, I am a black man first, and African American is my nationality designation um, uh, that that I choose. But we also have a uh, uh, Scottish, European uh, immigrant. They the ones that founded this colony, and then one of their descendants, one of the sons of one of the founders, married an African woman. And then thus starting the non-white line of of rankings from which I, I descend. Okay? So all things weren't equal. All things were, and they were just fortunate enough um, and protected to a certain extent, you could even say white privilege uh, uh, because of that family name. Okay? And to sit up here and act like that was the experience of millions and millions other African Americans emancipated victims of slavery and their descendants is just ignorant. It's just very, it's nothing but anecdotal evidence. I'm using a one personal story of my family to say that, oh, nothing was, oh, America was so great, nothing was holding black people back. Look at what my ancestors was able to do. Look at what my grandfather did. Look at what, what, what you know, now, you know, my mother and my aunts and my uncles and, and, and all that. And and so it's just absurd. It's just absurd. And and it's just shameful that the Republicans uh, chose to bring people up um, who were not very well versed on, on reparations, were coming there simply to oppose it and not really have a, a thoughtful conversation because all I was hearing was the same old talking points that I would hear from Rush Limbaugh, that I would hear from Sean Hannity or, or Fox and Friends in the morning and even some people on CNN and, and other, other uh, social media, excuse me, uh, uh, media. So it's just, it's just ridiculous. Um, that those two black men, one of them talking about his parents, oh, I'm in an Ivy League school now, you know, and talking about his privileged life. Well, again, you were lucky, your parents were lucky enough that they weren't run off the property. Like, you know, they a cross was burnt in my grandfather's yard when they started integrating school. And because my aunt, Drusilla, who just recently passed, may she uh, rest in power in heaven, um, you know, she was one of the first ones to go to Mount Holly High School. So other high school students going to come up to uh, my grandfather's property uh, where I'm sitting right now and burn a cross. And they got chased off uh, by black men with, with guns uh, who were willing to uh, defend their families with their lives, to defend their property with their lives. Now, again, that wasn't the usual outcome all across the United States. They talked about Tulsa. Um, Rosewood wasn't mentioned. Um, they talked about Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, and that's in the same state. So it, it just depended on where you were, who you knew, and a lot of times your last name. But to sit up there and to use anecdotal evidence to dismiss what was uh, uh, the norm 
And when I say what I'm talking about is white terrorism, the destruction of black towns, the uh, uh, taking their property and all of that. Okay, yo, so your family didn't suffer it. So is that some kind of evidence to say that everybody else didn't suffer that? And, and it's just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. Um, I mean, I got a bunch of points here. Uh, let me let me find. Okay, here is the thread. Mr. Owens, Mr. Owens, Mr. Owens, and I don't want anyone, if you want to call in, we don't call people names. We try to be codified to our very best. We're only human, so we make mistakes, and, and I do subscribe to, you know, a code of, of behavior where we should be respectful of individuals, even if they're not worth uh, respecting, but because we respect ourselves, so... Um, let's not call anybody coons or house Negroes or if you have any questions or comments. Um, the man has a name. Uh, black Republican will suffice. Black conservative because these are things that how they self-identified. Uh, he himself self-identified. But let's not go there. Um, we're calling people coons and, and that type, type of language. Okay. So uh, let me see. Now. Mr. Owens also was pushing fake news about absent black dads. And this was right after, this is right after Father's Day, man. Right after Father's Day. He talking about his 80% missing black fathers. See, he bringing up some of the problems that plague our community that I definitely address on Black Black Talk Radio News. Go, go check my last couple of podcasts about shutting down the nigger factory that white people own and, and, and run. Okay, and and go check out speeches documentary on that. So black people been addressing crime in our own communities for a very long, very long time. Um, but for Mr. Owens to say that 80 these problems are rooted in 80 percent of black dads being missing. CDC, how many times do I ha how many years in a row do I have to bring up the CD, uh, CDC report that was done? A few years ago, uh, being an involved dad, by most measures, black fathers are just as involved with their children as other dads in similar living situations, or more so, according to a new report by the National Center for Health Statistics. So that's not, and they, they're not giving you anecdotal evidence, uh, Mr. Owens. Um, they're not, they're giving you the facts. And the facts are, your facts are wrong. That your facts aren't facts at all, but are, is fake news. That has been circulated among conservative, conservative talkers for a very, very long time. So, I mean, in every category, and this is posted on Twitter. I posted the graph. In every category, let's go through some of the categories. broken down into three groups, Latino, white, and black. Child, although Latino uh, could be non-white Latinos, including black people, but also of Indian uh, uh, descent as well, Native American uh, descent, even though people in Mexico aren't, aren't um, the majority of them are descendants of indigenous people, but so, you know, let's take that into account. But Latino, white, and black. Uh, children under age five fed or ate meals with their children daily. 78% of black dads did, 73% uh, or I might as well say 74% of Latino dads reported eating with their children daily. Uh, 63, might as well say 64% of white dads. So that's 
That's the bottom. White is the bottom, black is the top on this. Bathe, diapered, or dress children daily. Only 45% of white men reported to being dads uh, in this area. 60% of Latinos uh, bathe, diapered, or dress their children daily. 70.4% bathe, diapered, or dress their children daily. Play with their children daily. 82% um, black males uh, reported being dads and playing with their children on a daily basis. 82 also percent of Latinos, 74% of white dads. Read to the children daily. 34.9% of black, uh, uh, black dads reported reading to their children daily. 30% of Latino dads and only 21% of um uh, uh, 21.9% might well say 22% of white dads read, read to their children. Now, it also t uh, not only covers fathers living with children because they try to say, you know, that, that he brought up marriage and during segregation we had a 70% marriage rate. Okay, but this study takes in, into account that everybody who decided to start a family don't go to the courthouse to get a piece of paper. So it even includes fathers living with kids, father not living with kids, but was still involved. Uh, let, let's look at that. 12.6% uh, of black dads not living with their kids fed or ate meals with them daily. Look, I'm going to stop it here because I'll could. I, I, I just eat up time. But check out that graph. Then it talks about children ages 5 to 18, the same categories and what have you. And again, basically the same same result um except for one where you get a uh, white dads who ate meals with children daily at 71 percent uh black dads at 61 percent okay um for children's ages 5 to 18 okay so uh this are these are facts in the face of fake news and it's just a shame like somebody said on twitter what qualifies Mr. Owens to be on this panel? What, he was a former NFL player? Did one of the Republicans that invite him follow his career? I think one of them said they was a fan of his career. Uh, he sounds like he's some kind of conservative activist now. Does he have a radio show? Uh, uh, what's going on? I, I know they said he, he wrote a book and what have you, but uh, I never heard of the book. Um, and so it, and I wouldn't recommend the book because it seems like he doesn't do research, or he does research, but he presents fake news instead of facts. And another thing that stood out to me is another myth that I've dealt with over the years. Black people, listen, black people in general, the majority of them were not better off during Jim Crow segregation. It's like, you know, and I've addressed this in the past, people advocating for a return to unconstitutional segregation. What I mean by that, where by law you are segregated, where, you know, the uh, drinking fountains and you can't use the public um, um, utilities provided by your tax dollars. You got to, you know, uh, uh, go to the back, sit in the back of the bus or not even allow in at all things and institutions that are supported by your tax dollars, okay? 
um, there was a lot of poverty. How are you going to talk about? And, and again, he was, I noted that he was very inconsistent. On one hand, he says during Jim Crow, we were very prosperous. But then on the other hand, he's saying, in, in another exchange, he's saying, but the Democrats and the KKK uh, terrorized these black people and denied them their rights. Okay, so so again, you know, the partisan push, the push to make the hearings partisan instead of just an examination of the facts and a discussion on on the impact of systemic racism of 400 years and continued slavery. Because, again, 13th Amendment clearly does not abolish slavery, but it sounds like he was advocating blacks were better off during segregation. Really, really do. Because we were forced to spend money with our own. Again, did you not hear, I think it was Dr. Devereaux, say that in one case, and I've read a paper, and this happened all over the country, where the black man entrepreneur opens up a grocery store near the white grocery store, and the white grocery store owner organizes a mob. There, I think they said three lynchings came out of that and, and burnt down the business. That was a common occurrence. And and yes, it was segregation, but they were they wanted black people to come spend their money but subject them to dehumanizing treatment. And can gotta come through the back door, but you can become spend your dollars with us. And then as soon as a black entrepreneur says, Look, we should have our own store. We shouldn't uh uh allow ourselves to be mistreated and, and, and giving our dollars to this. We need our own store. And then he starts a store and then it's burnt down to the ground. Again, that is not anecdotal evidence. That was a common occurrence and practice across the United States. So he won't tell me, he wants us to believe that black people, African Americans, descendants of victims of slavery and, and their children and grandchildren, we're better off. He's not very, very consistent. I mean, he's actually giving evidence of state-sponsored terrorism and racism by the federal government. But, oh, the Democrats was in charge. Well, it don't matter who was in charge. Yes, all those social programs to help those white people out the Great Depression were also barring black people, as was noted on the panel for the domestic workers and, and for the agricultural workers who couldn't pay into Social Security, weren't covered by minimum wage laws. This is institutional state-sponsored racial policy that has a direct impact on the wealth and inequality between blacks and everybody else. And then also, why do they like to bring... Uh, here's something I got to note. I saw, uh, this is something I've been talking about. Why does your movement want to advocate for reparations, but it's predicated or you find it necessary to demonize immigrants? Who brought the up immigrants? Oh, you have want to pit African-Americans against immigrants. Oh, you had a Caribbean family come here and settled in Boston and they had successful restaurants and businesses and all that. Look, most of the immigrants that come here are not the impoverished people of the nations that they come from. There are always exceptions. You can always find one or two families in the community that was living above the means of everybody else. How they were able to attain those favors, you know, that's, 
that's um I'm I'm sure varies from case to case. But most of those people who immigrated here came with money. They saved up money in their home countries. They were, let's just say, let's call them the upper middle class in Jamaica, in uh, um, Haiti, in whatever Caribbean island you want to pick. Then they saved up money, come here, and then like my brother in the U.S. Virgin Islands that listens to Black Talk Radio uh, shout out to you, Spence. As Spence was telling me, now, that's the U.S. Virgin Islands. It's a colony. It's not a state, but they're still supposed to be, the uh, inhabitants of that island is still supposed to be U.S. citizens, right? U.S. Virgin Islands, right? Do you know that the U.S. Virgin Islands government incentivizes and gives um, uh, money in the form of grants and, and no-interest business loans for immigrants, and he said that Arabs were really taking advantage of that. And that's not, again, we're not on here to pit races against race uh, using anecdotal evidence. But he said that that who was the group of people that were taking advantage of that and able to come to their community and open up stores and stuff because they were being aided by the government through tax breaks and, and other uh, um, incentives to start a business that weren't, again, these programs not extended to African Americans. Okay, so again, the anecdotal evidence that Mr. Owens was heavy on, uh, that the Republicans were soliciting from him, is, 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 is short on facts. Very short on, on facts. It's a person who does not read a lot, does not study history a lot, and just listens to partisan talking points because they have adopted a, a cult-like, sycophantic um, mindset subscribing to this political party or the other. See, they're not going to read this stuff, and then they're going to look foolish and ignorant and uninformed when they come on. And then we'll argue with you all day long. Nothing qualified uh, either of those guys the Republicans brought on last minute. Neither one of them, in my opinion, were qualified to present any evidence because all we got was personal stories. And and then from the NFL player, we got the rah-rah, pull yourself up by your bootsteps, bootstraps. You can do it. You can do it. I, I, I'm thinking about that guy in um, uh, The Water Boy uh, starring a Adam Sandler. You can do it. You can do it. Really, dude? Really? So let me go to the phone lines. Uh, we have a Black Talk Radio broadcaster uh, from Foundational Radio, uh, host and producer of Real Life, the radio show, uh, Brother Jenna, uh, who has unmuted himself. And again, let me give out the phone number, 704-802-5056. Hit the star key twice to unmute yourself. Uh, please mind, be mindful of your background noise. Uh, get those comments, get your calls in early. If you got something to say, whether you agree or disagree with what's being said or any part of the hearing you want to make a point about, uh, don't wait till the last minute. Get it in because I, I, I have uh, work to do and I will get through my points and, and, and you know, move on. Uh, Jenna, thank you for being patient. Thank you for calling in and tuning in. What What is on your mind about uh, this hearing? that we just listened to uh, H.R. 40 um, hearing. Uh, what What's the name of it again? H.R., the official name of it is the uh, um, 
HR 40 and restorative justice panel. I could be incorrect on that, but what's going on, Jenna? What's on your mind? Greetings, Scott. How are you doing this afternoon? Uh, hot and tired. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. I'm, I'm, I've, I've been cutting in and out because I've been out. I had to go purchase some storm doors. Uh, you know how lovely that is. But, uh, man, I think it was very informative, especially for the, uh, for the disinformation because what, what was proven today and Shamefully, it was a black man who had to uh, who had to be the evidence of how of how this uh, information can run rapid. Now I don't know if he didn't just know this or if he was talking talking points, but it shames me that it had to be a white woman to counter all of his points. That was that was kind of disappointing. But it also, uh, hopefully, it makes some of the people who make these ridiculous arguments about how great it was knowing Jim Crow and, and, and slavery and all of this, hopefully it makes them realize how ridiculous they sound. Because sometimes you can't hear that when you're the one that's actually uh, making those ridiculous noises. So it was it was kind of refreshing to see him try to rebuttal that. But all he ever did was just uh, change the subject. Now, uh, one of the other things I thought was uh, was an important point. Hey, hey, hey Jerry, recall. let me interject real quick. Um, we're getting background noise from you. Are you talking to us I, uh, via speakerphone or, or something? Yes, I can. I can correct that right now. Okay. Okay. But yeah, the two black Republicans. How was How was that? Yeah, in, that's better. Uh, in reference to the two okay. black Republicans. Uh, again, um, and this is how if the bill passed, which I don't think it's going to pass, but um, if it does pass, Republicans, Democrats, the president, people are, you know, they're entitled to call whoever they want. And unfortunately, the Republicans, instead of taking this serious within with uh, um, the mindset to sabotage the hearing and to engage in racial showcasing, I thought it was very telling that they called two black men. Um, surprised they right. didn't call Candace Owens, um, but um, you know they, that's how they chose to uh, fill their slots was with um, these two men, and as Mr. Neely Fuller calls it, racial showcasing. Yes, I, I agree. And uh, once again, like uh, hopefully, some of the black people who make these points can see how ridiculous they sound uh, just from the showcase today. Uh, one of the more important things that I thought was that it was, a, uh, I believe this was a, a, a white Democrat, which I don't separate the two, but just for uh, specific, just to specify who it was, uh, a white Democrat was talking about the uh, the usefulness of actually knowing the history, because I find that a lot of us talk about history based off of how we feel we would have reacted in those same situations, and it's it's nothing further from the truth because if you're not dealing with it, you just don't know. You know, uh, to that point, Jerry, Mr. Miller, um, I don't have his, I didn't write his first name down, but Mr. Miller sounded like he was either Scottish or Irish, but he was one of the witnesses that was called. And he talked about, you know, uh, his work, his organization work uh, to get reparations through a lawsuit uh, and how they, through, um, 
a reparations commission being established in whatever state was that Mississippi, Alabama, whatever state he mentioned where these people were terrorized and, and pushed off their land. And so they were trying to get, but they said the reparations commission in that state uncovered documented evidence in government records, you know, the type of evidence you would need in a lawsuit. Um, so th- he was talking about the importance of history, and people want to act like this is ancient history and what have you, and they just don't want to do the work because they want to keep this stuff buried. Well, again, uh, I-, I noticed a lot of identity politics that was going on, and not necessarily uh, based off of race. I know they kept interjecting the fact of uh, of, uh, of class, which I'm not saying that's wrong. But when we, you know, reparations was supposed to be for a Pacific, a Pacific group, and however that reparations may pay out, and you know, just to hear that once again, it was refreshing because there's a lot of starting points. Whether we're talking about uh, those lawsuits that you're talking about, where people can be more informed, or just the history itself of of taking your time and going to actually go through the details of what went on. Because it's a lot of blank spots, and we tend to fill those with our imaginations. And if we can stop doing that, I think it'll move a lot further. And I have one question for you, because I had uh, I had to keep cutting in and out because I was handling business myself. Uh, did they ever mention anything about how reparations are uh, are casted out? As far as uh, from from what I have uh, understood, that it has to be a nation to nation. And from the parts that I did catch, I never heard them mention that one time whatsoever. So if you could uh, clear that up for yes. me, that'll be my last question. And thank you for your time. Okay. Appreciate that. All right. If you have any additional commentary, you know how the board works. Um, so listen, this is to address what he just said. And this was actually in my notes. Uh, reparations doesn't have to be nation to nation. Jews didn't have a nation. Uh, when Germany uh, paid them reparations in the 40s or 50s, whenever that occurred. Um, but when Barack Obama paid them reparations, they, you know, to uh, uh, Jews, I think it was about $12 million, which seems like, you know, a meager amount. But um, I, I don't think it was a lot of people. And I think that might have been a response to a specific petition, uh, petition by some individual Jewish families. So no um, reparations isn't just nation to nation. Uh, we also acknowledge. Now, let me make this point. I think it was Representative Johnson, um, the guy from Louisiana, might have been, uh, but it was a black. It was a Republican, not a black Republican, but a Republican, and he said the U.S. cannot pay uh, ethnic groups. It would be uh, unconstitutional to. Um, designate one af- ethnic group to pay reparations to it, it, it was his point. But that's a lie because as I just stated, 2008, Barack Obama's administration paid reparations to to um, um, Jews. Also, I'm not sure what administration, it might have been during the Bush administration, I'm not sure which administration but Japanese Americans got paid reparations for being interned in those concentration camps of America during World War II. They got reparations. Okay? So, this again is when you don't 
no facts, when you don't have the right information, when you don't know history, you cannot rebut uh, this fake news, this disinformation given out. This guy will have us think it's unconstitutional for one group of Americans to pay another group of Americans based on race reparations. Well, let me also point out that all Americans, including African Americans, pay taxes. And so in a way, it'll be like the victims paying themselves in part, right? Even though they're going to get this check or in and whatever programs designed to uh, make up a reparations package, they're still contributing to that themselves. Are they not American taxpayers? Again, that, that goes back to the root of reparations is old, not just for slavery, as a lot of people want to try to limit it to, but the UN's reparations report, and I'm um, and maybe some of its age or what have you, uh, diminished mental capacity, and then the rapid-fire nature of these hearings. You don't always recall stuff and everything when, when you're in those situations, but I was disappointed that um, um, Danny Glover, the activist, the human rights defender, uh, who has worked with the UN and is an ambassador for uh, the UN during this decade of what they have declared the decade for people of African African descent. This is the UN-sponsored decade. The whole decade, we're going to focus on um, the condition of people of African descent and how they were impacted by white supremacy, slavery, the whole nine yards. Okay? And, and so the UN's came up with a reparations report. This panel out of working out of Geneva came up with a pan a, a, a reparations report that not only started in sixteen nineteen with the uh what's that, the Jamestown victims, but they also cited continued police violence and terrorism, what they call mass incarceration, which I know is the continuation of slavery through the prisons via the thirteenth amendment. And, and so, you know, that's why it's important. It's important to study these issues so that you can be informed and be able to participate in dialogue about these issues and then be able to, to know when somebody's shooting you a line of BS. Okay. And they're giving, and they're putting out misinformation. So, um, then uh, again, racial, I think it's racial showcasing um, that Mr. Fuller talked about where white people make black people the face of something. Well, let me put it this way. White supremacist, racist white people will get a black person and showcase them, put them out front as the spokesperson for the white people's interests, for the racist, the white supremacist interests. And so, you know, um, one of them, I think it was also Johnson, but one of them talked about his adopted black son, and he came from a broken family, and I rescued him and raised him as my own, and I was right there with him as he suffered uh, this, that, and the other, and he, he wanted me to tell y'all that he's against reparations. He want to showcase his black son, right? Okay, really, dude, really? A lot of showcasing going on here. Um, let me see. What else do I got in here? I don't even know why Senator Booker even brought up African-American, uh, excuse me, the crime rate or the murder rate 
and anecdotal evidence about shootings. Now, this is something that I have covered, but not in it's not in the context of reparations. Now, we can talk like Mr. Glover said about the interconnectedness of why these communities are are crime uh, ridden, which crime is always uh, linked to poverty. And, and what have you. So, I mean, that's something that, that we we have addressed in our community. But why is Mr. Booker talking about six people got shot in his community in New Jersey? Well, you know, some people, I read that some people got shot in Iowa the other day. A family of four was, was killed. Um, and they weren't black. Um, but then in Charlotte, there was, I mean, these shootings happen in the United States. You just had a, a, a suspected white supremacist terrorist just attack a federal courthouse the other day. Why is Mr. Booker bringing up crime? What did that got to do with the issue of studying reparations and coming up with, with re- restorative justice policies? It didn't have nothing to do with it, in my opinion, because and, and, and he didn't make the connection from slavery, you know, I mean, it's like they didn't watch the 13th by Ava DuVernay. It's like they didn't read slavery by another name. It's like they didn't watch the CNN documentary American Jail. You know, come on, Mr. Booker. This ain't, that's an entirely separate issue. We're not talking about individual violence committed by individuals against other individuals. No, we're talking about state-sponsored sanctioned Terrorism, racism, slavery, prison slavery, job discrimination, pay discrimination, depriving African Americans of their constitutional rights by way of unconstitutional legislation that was allowed to stand for a century before it was challenged by black people. African Americans and whatever few allies that they had at the time, because it certainly wasn't a majority of white folks out there uh, putting their necks on the line uh, uh, to right these wrongs. Uh, let me see, what else do I have? I mean, there there is so much that we could break down. Um, Mr. Coleman Hughes is talking about, that's the young Princeton or Ivy League a uh, black college student who was uh, a witness for the Republicans uh, want to say that paying reparations is like reducing me to a victim. I'm sorry, but let's just say the reparate a reparation check of fifty thousand dollars, guaranteed uh, FHA uh, uh, loans, low interest or no interest loans, um, admission. You know, there's a number of things we we can talk about in terms of what's reparations but let's say I got a $50,000 check okay give me a $50,000 check it's not making me a victim Mr. Uh, Coleman Hughes that's absurd that's ridiculous so uh, by the same token are we saying as was partly noted again you can't go into real detail in debt in these hearings you have five minutes at a time and what have you Okay, but um, did the United States government, when it came up with the Homestead Act and and excluded black people, did was the U.S. federal government victimizing them white people by giving them free land? Was the U.S. government, and these were recent immigrants, 
was the U.S. government victimizing them by giving them loans to mechanize their farms? Was the U.S. did FDR victimize white people by giving them social security and, and labor rights and, and everything that they mentioned to uplift the middle class or the uh, start actually start the middle class? Okay, were those white people being victimized by those programs? So how how ridiculous, Mr. Hughes. I would think that you were smarter than that given that you go to an Ivy League school. I thought, you know, the standards was tough. But again, I am not on here trying to to um, talk about his intelligence level because I know a lot of intelligent people who dumb themselves down through propaganda and, and, and they'll fall for the propaganda and they'll believe it. And to the point that they will make these ridiculous comments. So it's not to say he's not an intelligent young man. It's just that he's widely misinformed and his thought process on this is flawed. I don't know how old he is, but I heard, you know, your brain's still developing uh, physically until you're 26 years old. Um, he's still, like Jenna says a lot on, on his broadcast, when somebody asks him how he's doing, he say, I'm still learning. So this young man still learning. And it's just a shame that Republicans would, would choose to politicize their slots in picking, um, you know, uninformed individuals who are giving us anecdotal stories uh, uh, in place of reference, uh, um, evidence. This makes no sense, man. It makes no sense. You know, um, let me see. Now, the bishop, let me address the bishop, the rev on the panel. He's the only rev. I'm sorry I don't have his name in front of me. Um, I could pull it up on a separate page. But the bishop, look, you no, none of those people on those panel, on that panel, spoke for all black people. We are a large group of millions of people with individual backgrounds, individual education levels, individual religions, individual uh, philosophies that we follow, individual codes of conduct, and all of that. So no black, no black person speaks for all. Okay, but some of them do represent the majority view, and I can tell you, Mister um, Bishop, um, with all due respect, that you're wrong on collective forgiveness. I am a Christian too, and and I've gone back and forth with my mom about this. Because uh, there's teaching in Christianity that, you know, this guy went to Jesus and said, you know, how many times should I forgive my brother? My brother did me wrong. And he, he said 70 times 7, meaning infinite amount of times you're supposed to forgive somebody who's wronged you. Um, but my understanding is, is that you can't receive forgiveness until you ask for forgiveness. Okay? And just a milly mouth apologies aren't really um, you admitting that you did anything wrong. And again, these, you know, most of these people were in denial on the Republican side about what was done wrong and the ongoing harm uh, and wrong that that's continues today. But, but the bishop is wrong on collective forgiveness. Now, does that mean I hate white people? No, but I'm very, very uh, 
strongly, strong, I despise, that's a good word, I despise white supremacists, I despise racist white people, and I despise refined racists who pretend like they ain't racist and like they fault us when they're really against us. Um, so I know just from my 11 years of doing broadcast radio that not all black people uh, have forgiven the United States for what it's doing and continue to, to do. I mean, excuse me, what it's done and what it continues to do. Again, we ain't talking about ancient history. Y'all at like 150 years ago uh, or 100 years ago or 50 years ago was like ancient history or something. It's not. Okay, my mom lived through some of that. I got great aunts and uncles that lived through through that that period. All right, so um, he's wrong on the um, forgiveness thing, and but that's not really important. I just made a note of that because that's a trope that causes black people to become divisive with one another and say, "Oh, there go them Christians forgiving white folks and all that." And and it's really a spiritual thing, um, but all of us are not in agreement. I believe you have to ask for forgiveness before it can be granted. Just like if you're a Christian, you know you have to repent of your sins, acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord, and ask for forgiveness. Well, that's what repent of your sins mean. And then it doesn't mean then you continue on doing the same things that you ask for forgiveness for. What's the point? Okay. So, um, I'm going to move on from that. But I also think he was wrong on the history about plantation. Now, this guy was for reparations. Um, he wasn't so strongly for a monetary check, but towards the end, he said, okay, um, you know, I don't want to exclude monetary benefits because these old women, uh, black women that were shut out of Social Security, wasn't protected by federal minimum wage laws, that worked as domestics. Um, are now in retirement homes without a retirement uh, package, okay? Depending on what, Medicaid, Medicare, or whatever, or the generosity of others. And if they're lucky, if they're lucky, you know, they if they were born into a family like mine, you know, the, old, the uh, uh, elders are taken care of and, and until in the house, until it becomes medically impossible, to care for them so but he was wrong on saying plantation owners were compensated now unless he has some specific data or information that i have not seen the 14th amendment strictly again 14th amendment wasn't just about uh making emancipated victims of slavery citizens and setting the parameters for birthright citizenship but Others, it has like four sections. The other section said that nobody who supported the Confederacy served in the Confederacy, whether it was in the army or the government, the short-lived government, uh, none of them, you don't get no compensation. That was in the 14th Amendment. So I don't know that they were compensated unless they were compensated uh, uh through illegal means okay so that right there is a questionable fact um, a, a questionable uh, statement about 
plantation owners being compensated. In, in fact, you know, as I was researching 40 acres and a mule last night for which H.R. 40 is named, you, and it did come up during the hearings, a uh, special order, field order 15, which granted African Americans and primarily the African American soldiers who just saved the Union, okay, but to grant them 40 acres in a mule that was then rescinded by uh, racist uh, um, um, subsequent administrations, I believe, beginning with, with Johnson. But that was what black people was demanding. That's what they wanted. Not just for compensation for unpaid labor, but they wanted the plantation farms. They wanted the land. That's where that land was, what they were saying we want. We want that land. We, you know, we told on this land. These people betrayed the U.S. government. You even had to recruit us to put them down or else, you know, we'd be living in the CSA. I want my 40 acres and a mule. I want my payment for services rendered, for saving this nation and for the unpaid labor for generations. Uh, they, and, and they never got it. They never got it. They never got it. So I don't know about no plantation owners being... Uh, given reparations. I do know about convict leasing that came up after the 13th Amendment, which never abolished slavery, but um, set set uh, an exception clause in there that allowed for slavery as punishment for crime. So again, Jim Crow explained black codes, where you targeting black people with a specific set of laws that you don't target white people with to put them into jail, to put them into prison, and then lease them right back out to them plantation owners. So no, them plantation owners didn't get reparations, but they got their victims back via convict leasing. I was just reading recently, let's bring this current. I just read an article the other day where because of Donald Trump's policy against undocumented migrants and workers, um, you know, which take these agricultural jobs and what have you, that the deportation has cut their population and, and, and immigration into the country. And I'm not making this about immigration, but saying now that those farmers are contracting with who? Prisons to use prison labor instead since their source of cheap slave-like labor from undocumented immigrants Vulnerable people has dried up because of Trump's policies. So again, do not let anybody tell you that reparations is just about slavery prior to 1865. It's also about continued slavery. And, and I'll be kicking myself if I have not already mentioned that there seem to be no abolitionists, no modern-day slavery abolitionists on that panel. The 13th Amendment was mentioned several times, even in closing by Representative uh, Sheila Lee. Um, but, again, it's like y'all didn't watch Ava DuVernay's Netflix special, 13th. You didn't read uh, what, Dr. Blackman's book, Slavery by another, by another Name. It's like you, you didn't read none of this. And you're saying that something ended that, in fact, has not ended. That, that's why I don't use the word mass incarceration. I may slip up and use it every once in a while, but I always try to tell people this isn't mass incarceration. This is a continuation of slavery in a new form.
So African Americans have been betrayed, promises been broken, treaties been broken, and you would think that it's an American interest. It's in America's domestic interest of tranquility to settle this debt. Now they want again want to let me go back to this point. This is in my notes where they talking to try to make it about white Americans paying black Americans. We all are Americans and paying taxes. Okay? So it ain't about the individual taxpayer. It's about the federal government and the state governments as part of and party to the mistreatment, the crimes against humanity. But let me point this out to you. Every year, the United States via Congress and the president, via elected representatives in the federal government, hand out trillions of dollars in reparations checks to millions, hundreds of millions of citizens of other countries by way of U.S. aid, by way of U.S. military uh, 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 packages, you know, armaments and what have you. Israel gets $1 billion a year. Why are we paying American taxpayers giving Israel $1 billion a year? Why are we taxpayers giving millions of dollars to any African nation or any Caribbean nation or any South American nation or any Asian nation? How is it that you can find million, trillions of dollars every year to pay these people to do what? Repair their lives? Because that's what reparations mean, and that's why you call it USA. I call it also bribery. Because you bri those that fund those that money comes with strings attached, like you vote the way I want you to on UN resolutions, or we'll pull our funding of your government and let your people starve and, and, and collapse. And so, I mean, again, you want to bring up Marxism and socialism, uh, Mr. Owens, but what about that? Here, here, U.S. taxpayers, by way of the federal government, is handing out trillions of dollars a year to foreigners, to people in foreign nations. And you call it in America's best interests. You're looking after American interests. Well, I would surmise to you that it would be in America's interest to settle this debt. Just take a year off of spending a trillion dollars and giving it away to these foreign nations in, in the form of U.S. dollars or any kind of other programs that you set up for them. How about Stop giving that money away long enough to settle this debt that you owe. Isn't that in your domestic interest, in your tranquility? But see, now, listen, y'all, I got to keep it real with y'all, all right? I got to keep it real with, with, with everybody out there that, that may hear my voice hearing it now or may hear it later. African Americans, it's on us to force them. Like Frederick Douglass said, Power concedes nothing without a demand. What do we have that they want? What do we have that they've needed? What what do we have that they've historically needed? Our labor. What is one form of that labor that is very vital to America today? 
our participation in the U.S. Armed Forces. Now, I think I read somewhere that it's illegal. I could be uh, charged with a federal crime for telling black people y'all ought to think about boycotting the U.S. military and stop going to these countries to kill and get killed in these nations that are then be given your reparations. Yo, reparate. They don't even take care of veterans. And I am a U.S. veteran. Now, I can go to, if anybody, any U.S. attorney out there want to charge me, then charge me. But you know what? I, I'm going to claim freedom of speech on that. I'm going to declare, declare that law unconstitutional. If you're telling me that, that racist white people can yell nigga in the street, or let me say it the way they say it can yell nigger in the street, can get on social media and spread all this white supremacist racist ideology, use the humanizing language towards non-white people, black people, and you calling that free speech? Then I'm claiming free speech. Throw me in jail. Try to prosecute me if you want to. See if a jury will convict me. But that will just be further evidence of your crimes. When we get serious about this and start withholding our support for their unjust wars, stop giving our energy to the U.S. Armed Forces, where we're nothing but low-paid mercenaries. Low-paid mercenaries. You got U.S. troops that qualify for food stamps. Then you got all these female uh, 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 troops being raped in the military by their fellow soldiers. Why? Why do you continue to send your children off to die? Well, I know part of the reason is poverty. You're possibly in my, well, like the situation I was in, not wanting to go into debt while my family had land and I ate three meals every day and had a clean house to live in and a clean bed to sleep in and a place to wash my behind and all of that, all my basic needs being provided for. Unfortunately, my family could not send any of us to college. And I was not going to let anybody co-sign their house, co-sign their property to be a signatory so I can get a, a predatory loan to go to school. So I joined the military. I wish that I hadn't. I wish I'd have found another option. But that's the option that, that we've been faced with. Okay? So, I know some of us go in there because we want to eat, because the military gives you housing, the military gives you three meals a day, military gives you clothing, well, you got to pay for your uniforms and all that, so I take that back. They don't give you free clothes or nothing, uh, uh, um, and lose some equipment, and you got to pay for it, no matter how, how little it costs and, and what have you. But when we get serious and we stop being scared to talk bluntly and say to America, why should we, let me retract that because America is two continents but say you know you want to say we US citizens but you want to continue to deny us the debt that you owe us for saving this country and for mistreating us but you know when we get serious and say we're no longer going to register for the draft 
Well, you register for the draft. If they implement the draft, just don't show up. Or go and say, I'm a conscientious objector. And I do think they're going to try to bring, bring the draft back. Because they depleted um, their volunteer force. Man, I mean, there's so many millions and millions of people, veterans that are messed up, man, psychologically and physically. Why do we, why do we as a group of people, as marginalized African-American U.S. citizens continue to join the military? When we say we won't go until this debt is settled, till reparations is paid, we might get some movement on that. We might get some movement on that. Okay? When we are seriously engaging in mass boycotts, economic boycotts, like Dr. King and other civil rights leaders led, but no, we got to go buy them Jordans. We got to spend on Christmas. And I understand the psychology behind it because that's one of the few times of, of the year that you can show your kids a little joy, you know, after uh, telling them, no, I can't afford that Barbie. No, I can't afford that that car set. I can't afford a bike. I can't afford this or that. You know, people scrimp and save all year, put it on layaway. You know, when we boycott Christmas and stop scrimping and saving to put stuff on layaway to feed into the corporate system that is still benefiting from slavery. For example, Walmart still uses prison slave labor. When we get serious, I believe that we will be taken serious. But let me be clear, at the end of the day, I have come to the conclusion, sadly, that Mr. Fuller is right. White people are in charge, and only white people can end white supremacy. So we need you, quote-unquote, good white folks out there of conscience to push for these reparations. You need to question these candidates. And I'm not just talking about presidential candidates, but Senate, people seeking the Senate, people seeking the House of Representatives. This has to be part of their platform, support for reparations. Okay? Support for reparations. And then, you know, uh, we might get what we're old, but if we just keep doing the same thing and thinking that we can prove how loyal we are to the country by giving our lives and our limbs and our blood to it, um, you know, we're gonna keep we're gonna keep getting the same disrespect, the same uh mistreatment, the, the same old, same old. How long have I been on, on, on air? Man, I'm approaching five hours. Um I felt like this was something Black Talk Radio had to do because I don't know. Y'all tell me. Somebody, if you in the car, if you got a, a, a transistor radio around or whatever, a FM, AM radio, tune to your local black radio station and see if they talking about this reparations hearing that we just heard on Black Talk Radio. Tell me if they played it in its entirety. Tell me if they brought on any local activists afterwards or opened up the phone lines for the com black community that these stations are targeting. And I almost call them black stations, but they're not. They're owned by Clear Channel, now iHeartRadio. And yeah, Kathy Hughes is, uh, owns a lot of black radio, black radio stations, um, but is not the type of programming that's going to move us towards 
liberation and towards justice. So y'all tell me, are these other radio stations um, today talking about reparations? Are they airing? Did they air the hearing? So I, I just want I thought it was very important that uh, Black Talk Media Project through the Black Talk Radio Network provide coverage and commentary. Um, again, I got a bunch of notes here. I don't know if I'm going to get to them all. But if you have a question or comment, don't be shy. Not going to bite your head off whether you agree or disagree with any points being made. Um, but if you have any observations uh, you made of the hearings, please, by all means, share them by giving us a call. 704-802-5056. 704-802-5056. This is Scotty Reed, Black Talk Radio News, broadcasting from behind the enemy lines. Hit star, star. To unmute yourself, please be mindful of your background noise. Uh, Jenna. Jenna. Black Talk Radio host. Yes. What What do you want to add? And did you hear my answer uh, to your question? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And okay. I, I appreciate that. Uh, I'm going to have to go back through it and listen to it all over again because I know it's a lot of points. This, this type of discussion, you like you stated, you have to write down notes to make sure that you have your, uh, your all your thoughts together because this type of issue kind of uh, is centered around one thing, but it has connections to so much more. Uh, the one thing that I wanted to point out that most people know, but I find that it's a few of us who don't, is that this HR 40 bill is not the reparations bill. So I think that's a misconception that a lot of us be having also, is that this is a discussion about the payment of reparations. So I just want to throw that out there just in case nobody let, caught let, on Let me to say that. something to that because, you know, people have said, oh, what is there to talk about? Cut the check. So, you know, that's how they do things in Congress. Nobody gets cuts the check without there being hearings, without there being a, a, a study on whatever issue that they go. None of that happens. Um, you, they just, the U.S. government just doesn't cut checks. Okay, and so Jenna is right. It is a study. It's to set up a panel. Again, as I stated, if you read the legislation, it says the president gets the gets a slot, um, the Senate gets a number of slots, the House gets a number of slots, the Democrats get a number of. I think it's split up between Democrats and Republicans, but uh, you know, partisan slots or or what have you. And so they pick the people that then go on this panel. And then study the issue, supposed to look at the evidence like some of what was presented today, and then come up with a set of policy puzzle proposals, whether that includes a check or not, but a check and other programs to to uh, uh, settle this debt. That is what was under discussion today. The Republicans don't even want it, this bill to pass to even study it and discuss it and come up with any kind of policies because they're opposed to it uh, from get-go. So, um, yeah, Jenna, go ahead. Oh, no, nah, that's all I had wanted to, uh, just to make sure that we know that because, like you said, what's the discussion for and, and people not actually realizing that the discussion is necessary and if they're not paying attention to it, there will be no more discussion because they're they're waiting for the check to be uh you know, it's kinda like waiting for uh for a bill to come, like a bill that you have to pay for your home and then 
you never received the you never received the bill because you thought it was just coming. Hey, your audio's low again. Up. You know, you have to sign up for certain things. Uh, it's just a lot to be. Uh, it's just a lot of stuff that has to be taken care of before a check could be right. pushed out. And a lot of us don't understand that. We just think, well, it's this has been an issue for so long. Now they starting to talk about it. When is my money coming, or the programs, or am I going to get an allotment of land, or what have you? And just not understanding the process. So I think that's another very important part of this whole conversation is realizing that this conversation is not for a check, but to discuss it further. A lot of us are not aware. To establish of the bill is to establish. A commission. The commission's job is to dig into the data, examine the information, and then come up with a policy uh, or a set of policies, which can include a $50,000 check, a $100,000 check, exemption from U.S. military service, lifetime exemption from taxes, lifetime guaranteed home loans and business loans from the federal government. They can take many forms. So, so yeah. Um, let me move on. Before um, I leave, Scotty. Yes. Before I go, I, I have one more. Uh, the reason I point this out is because all of us, uh, whether we're getting a check, expecting a check, or what have you, for the, for our loved ones who will be receiving a check or land or what have you, it's your responsibility, just like it's my responsibility, to stay on the local uh politicians and what have you mm -hmm. to make sure, like you said, that's going to vote on this in our favor because if mm -hmm. we just take the uh, if we take the idea that they're going to do it or what I say don't matter, then, you know, you can only get what you get then and you shouldn't be expecting any more if you haven't done anything to, uh, to Yeah, your audio still coming in low. Again. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm gone, Scotty. Thank you, sir. Okay. All right. Um, something I want to hit real quick in, in my notes is I, I got to close it out. Uh, for those that don't know, I suffered a um, back injury years ago, and it's, it's, it's you know, one of them nagging kind of in injuries that stay with you, um, you know, for the rest of your days. And I've been sitting in this chair <laughs> for five hours, going on five hours, and I can't sit in this chair no more. I got to move. I got to go stretch out and what have you. So I, I'm getting ready to sh cut it short. Um, I give it um, people um, ample time if they want to express their opinions on the hearing or any other related issues. But um, this is what I want to say um, on a side note to the people that want to claim that African Americans weren't enslaved or, or dispute their um, transatlantic slave trade and want to say we aborigines and all this and want to ask nonsensical questions about where are the slave ships uh, one of the things that white woman said Katrina Brown was her name Katrina Brown um, come from one of the largest slave trading families in the United States and she even testified they got you know, the records and all of that uh, how many slave ships they sent to Africa well really it's not a slave ship it's just a cargo ship it's just a ship with a cargo hold that you use to transport human beings um, to enslave them. Um, but how her family had a company that sent ships to Africa. 
sent ships to Africa. Wow. I thought that was really deep. So uh, the records do exist. For some reason, and I think for monetary gain, you know, like most con people do, con men, con women, people running a scam or what have you, man, they're using photographic evidence, using photographs and paintings and then saying they're about something else when that's not what they're about. Uh, whatsoever, and trying to say we was already here first, and you know, uh, um, uh, we, you know, uh, uh, most of us we're indigenous. We're not African. We don't have no relation to them African Americans and all that. And, and to try to minimize again, that undermines reparations. Cause now you got some folks that look like us. Thank God none of them was invited to the panel by by Republicans. Thank God they did not invite Dane Calloway to this panel, you know, because he'd been, he'd been up there, uh, uh, where are the slave ships, I've never seen one in a museum, and, and I don't believe that news about the Clotilda being found, or uh, the history of Africatown, and we were here first, we're indigenous, we're aborigine, copper-colored people, and oh my God, I'm so glad that they did not invite that person on there, but she said that to check out the documentary, Traces of the Trade. Go look it up, Dane Calloway. Um, I guess, you know, you failed at being a musician, so you decided you was going to be a fake historian and what have you. So, you know, there's some documented evidence if you want to be, um, if you want to look at the evidence objectively and, uh, you know, uh, tell the truth to people and stop lying to them. But the documentary, Traces of the Trade traces of the trade and she also made comments about distorted history uh why people don't want to talk about reparations and, and slavery and distort hey dang calloway that's what you doing you you working hand in hand i don't know this for a fact but your work aligns with the interests of white supremacists who don't want to pay reparations by teaching people a distorted history all right distorted history is what she said why most people are against reparations because again most most polls the American public is against reparations and why I feel like the tact that, that should be taken or continued upon is through lawsuits now it's going to take voting so if you don't vote I understand you don't vote you don't believe in the system can be changed through voting or you can't put people in there to change the system I'm not talking to you, but I'm talking to those who are voting, um, particularly those who just fought hard-fought battles to get your right to vote back after it was taken from you after you became a victim of prison slavery via the 13th Amendment, okay? So so that means that I heard from Mr. Miller. He said the biggest obstacle to the reparation lawsuits is statute of limitations, a two-year limit in that particular case that happened not during pre-1865 slavery, but during Jim Crow and thereafter of this uh, these black families being uh, 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 run off their property and their property stolen from them. He said statute of limitations. Well, how do you change the statute of limitations? He was telling us something, work that needs to be done. The statute of limitations need to be changed. Didn't they just change the statute of limitations concerning 
uh, 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 sex crimes involving children? Didn't they just, they, they change statute of limitations all the time. How do you change the statute of limitation? Through legislators, okay? That's how you change statute of limitation. So that's another uh, thing that we need to be doing. If we're going to engage in the people activity area of politics, these are things that we need to be developing strategies. Maybe in some states that you can put a ballot initiative on, just like how Colorado voters put a ballot initiative on the ballot to remove the th- the exception uh, clause that allowed for prison slavery from their state constitution. So maybe they can put something on the ballot initiative to vote uh, uh, and get voter turnout to remove the statute of limitations on reparations, uh, whether it's at the state level or the federal level. See, that all requires work. That requires participation. Uh, What's not going to get you a reparations check or any kind of restorative justice is just complaining about the process and not being involved in the process or doing nothing, sitting on your hands doing nothing. Nothing. It's going to come about by that. So, you know, I'm just very appreciative of the works our ancestors have done, um, current activists and elders are doing, and, um, you know, any young people that's picking up the mantle. This is the debt that is old, and it needs to be paid. We're going to take final comments from Jenna. Brother Jenna, you get the final uh, comments. Are you there? Did you want to comment, or, or did I just leave you unmuted for the last time? Okay. All right. So uh, let me see if there's anything that I feel like important that I left out that I didn't address. Uh, Katrina Brown, I just talked about Katrina. Coleman Hughes Uh Let me see. Mr. Owens, Mr. Owens, Mr. Owens, please seek. Well, anti-racist psychologist as soon as possible. All right. Um, Julian Malvo, I think she gave some good information uh, on the economics, and she made a very important point. You talk about these spending bills. Now, see, this goes to what I was talking about, them giving out trillions of dollars every year to all these different nations. There's probably over 100 of them. All right, that money is funded through spending bills. And so she was brought up the fact that there needs to be a racial audit on future spending bills. How does this spending bill address these issues that are involving Americans, specifically African-Americans? So before you spend some money, let's make sure that you're spending this money to address what American citizens need. Okay. I, I thought that was a very important point. Um, the Irish scholar, Mr. Miller, um, named the states and local governments in, in, in the lawsuit and was saying how the evidence exists, and all you got to do is gather it. So, um, yeah, that's it. That, that's about it. I think I covered everything. Um, 646, did you have a question or comment as we get ready to wrap it up? Yes, very briefly, Brother Scott. Appreciate it. Well, what's up, Tag? It's it's great to hear this broadcast, and you know, it's such an important question. Just two two things, real quick, that I noticed uh, that connected with what's been discussed on New Abolitionist Radio many times. Uh, Well, first, the, the entire theme of prison slavery in general. 
you know, of course, being totally sidelined and, and ignored throughout the entire hearing, as as should be expected, sadly. But uh, the the fact is that Representative Lee did say clearly that the institution of slavery never ended, and I found that very interesting. She went on to go go into questions of uh, de jure and and de rigueur law. So okay. that seemed to. I must have missed that part, Tag. I'm glad you brought that to my attention because um, I did go in and out, um, go out the room to grab a cup of coffee and came back. So I might have missed that. Okay, let 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 me mute Jenna. Um, so I'll go back and I'll listen for that point. So you said that she said Representative Jackson correctly noted that the institution of slavery never ended. In in such a way that even though her statement was very clear, it was unclear what was meant by that. And I I, I don't know how exactly to interpret that on on the representative's part, but it was stated very clearly. Uh, and then the 13th Amendment was referenced just a few sentences later, but not in a continuous way that would clearly demonstrate that slavery is still going on to this day in a different form in the prisons, which, you know, would have been a clear way to put that. So I, I, I found that interesting. And uh, also the, the question of denial. Uh, the One of the mentions of uh, the Holocaust that I heard, because I didn't get a chance to hear all of it, unfortunately, but I will definitely revisit uh, that video. Uh, it was mentioned that, you know, Holocaust denial is an issue and the harms caused uh, by denials of, of the, you know, what's traditionally referred to as the Holocaust. Uh, we, of course, know that that was not the only ho- Holocaust or, uh, you know, with questions of the Ma'afa and, again, you know, slavery, enslavement. But that's something that New Abolitionist Radio, you know, uh, has brought out several times. And that's that's something that I think needs to be uh, really emphasized, that this denial of the fact, the continued fact of prison slavery is commensurate with and needs to be taken seriously as uh, the same as denying that Holocaust. Right. I, I certainly agree with you 100% there, uh, Holocaust denial. Because Ma'afa just refers to the African Holocaust that was tied up in the transatlantic uh, slave trade and, and then the intercontinental uh, practice of the institution of slavery is certainly a holocaust uh way way you know not not that this is them versus us who had it worse but the african holocaust uh went on far longer than uh nazi germ the uh nazis in germany were in power and operating concentration camps and later uh death camps and i would say uh our concentration camps still exist to this day um and we call them prisons we call them prisons, and it's doing a lot of harm to a lot of people. It is not 
correcting any behavior, but it's exacerbating uh, any existing problems. And then let's not forget how many innocent people get exonerated, hundreds every year by DNA evidence, and then those who have been convicted of nonviolent uh, crimes like selling weed, you know, to try to make up for the economic disparity and in, in the racist pay, you know, that they experience living out their lives and then the prisons filled with them, you know. Um, so, yeah, uh, I do know um, Mr. Um, um, Danny Glover brought up the crack cocaine. Well, who was responsible for that? Let's go back to another congressional hearing where Oliver North um, in Iran-Contra affair. Um, Ricky Ross, that documentary he's in where he's talking about they made a pipeline. Well, he's actually in the nigger factory um, talking about the pipeline that the uh, uh, U.S. government allowed these Nicaraguans to set up to the United States because Congress cut off all funding um, to the uh, uh, executive branch, Reagan, at the time to fund uh, the CIA activities in supporting uh, insurgent terrorist groups inside those countries to overthrow their governments. Um, the U.S. Uh, government via the CIA set up a crack co- uh, a cocaine pipeline that uh, result to get funds from the African community, African American community, to fund their dirty wars in South. South America. So, you know, I did take note of that. That's another reason uh, they owe reparations for the whole crack cocaine conspiracy. I mean, the evidence just abounds and, and to be in denial about it is either because you are racist, white supremacist, you're uninformed and uneducated, or you're just simply apathetic to these issues. Tag, did you have anything else as I get ready to wrap it up? Just very briefly, and, and pardon uh, off the breathing, I'm, I'm a little bit more situated uh, where I am now. But uh, exactly the, those those legacies and and the fact that they remain with us. And just to clarify, if need be, you know the the current iteration of that same ma'asa of that same Holocaust. In in if that were to be viewed. With this as despicable as is viewed, deniers of what's traditionally referred to as the Holocaust, it would it would a lot. It, there would be a lot less of it going on, and mm-hmm. people would feel a lot more uh, vulnerable about just flippantly denying prison slavery, which is of course extremely important, and and for those who have to suffer under it. The, the denial of it is, is doing great harm. So uh, th- that was just to, to clarify that. And, and again, greatly appreciate the broadcast and all of the work and uh, the importance of supporting Black Talk Radio Network. I just couldn't emphasize more, uh, especially when just, for example, the other day, looking looking around and seeing that uh, killedbypolice.net for example, is no this longer online you know, for, for lack of, of, uh, of support, apparently. Mm. So uh, things like yeah. that just further further remind me of, of the critical importance of this network and 
and all of us supporting it as best we can. All right. Well, thanks, Tag. Um, I'm running out of time on the conference. Uh, like I said, been going five hours. So I'm going to shut it down. I reiterate what Tag said. Please make a donation to the North Carolina-based nonprofit Black Talk Media Project. You can make a donation via blacktalkradionetwork.com. Um, I'm going to have to break up this podcast. So, um, you know, I'll probably uh, post it uh in its entirety tomorrow after I have time to break it up. Uh, New Abolitionist Radio is scheduled to air tonight at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time right here on Black Talk Radio Network. With that said, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you to the callers. And um, we'll be back with another broadcast of BTR News tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. With that said, recognize the fact you live behind the enemy lines of USA, Inc. They still practice slavery via the prisons, via the 13th Amendment. And so uh, reparations isn't just for slavery past, but reparations should be for slavery present. And what better way to start than to repeal and replace the 13th Amendment so it doesn't have an exception clause for slavery or involuntary servitude. Peace and blessings to all. Scotty Reed signing out.